0: Today's episode of the Fresh Fiction Podcast is brought to you by Ravel Books and Bethany House, publishers of Enclave by Thomas Locke. In a distant future, 50 years after an event called the Great Crash, America is no longer reflecting the great country it once was. Now the country is sliced into communities called Enclaves, some which are more prosperous than others. Two of the largest and most affluent Southern enclaves, Charlotte and Atlanta, remain stable and business-friendly, but that all changes when a new vein of gold is discovered, sending everyone into a tizzy of hope and fear. Of course, there are many good forces and bad in the Enclaves, but one young man holds the key to keeping the peace. As long as he's able to keep his secret while helping keep the attention on the enclaves to a minimum, everything will be okay. Thomas Locke's newest sci- sci-fi adventure, Enclave, releases on November 20th, and he's here to tell us more about the new novel. Welcome, Thomas, to the Fresh Fiction Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's so great to have you, and um, it's been really fun. I have to tell our listeners, you and I have been going back and forth for a couple of weeks trying to get this uh, interview all set, <laughs> so I'm very excited to finally have you on the phone. Um, so. so he- you. You're, you are in England right now, is that correct
1: yes we've we've been here actually for uh, i mean normally we're here just for the two terms that my wife teaches, but mm-hmm. um things have just been crazy this year, so yes we've been here now for fourteen months and i am I am missing our Florida home so much. Oh. She actually went back without me for two weeks, and I was just so jealous oh. i mean, it was just yeah. I just, uh, anyway. Okay. Yeah. We are here it, in England. Yeah.
0: Right. So, is, is it? It must be a challenge. I mean, is it, it's so interesting. Because I think um, a lot of Americans definitely romanticize living overseas, and to hear you say, like, I just want to come home. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's a really nice place where we live. The The life here is very enriching. My wife teaches at a, a big English university and the community has been very welcoming to us both. But home is home. Yes. And normally, you know, we're never over here for more than four or five months at a time. And for this, now we're entering into our, uh, actually entering into our 15th month. And uh, it's just, uh, we are. We're supposed to be going home in December. I just heard yesterday that it may have to be uh, put back another month, and oh, it's like no, 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 no,
0: no. <laughs> and then to hear that she got to go before you, you're just like, please. Oh, let me it's
1: know. just terrible. She had the. Oh, I'm sorry, darling. I have. To, I know you can't go, but I have to go to this conference. It's just so necessary. It's just, oh, I'll miss you so much. Ah, oh, oh, it's terrible. That is so funny. Do you have
0: um, any pets or anything? thing to at least keep you company while you're there?
1: No, where we live, okay, now we're getting into some um, strange things. Through the university, we have a Downton Abbey sort of existence. We live in the uh, what used to be the chief butler's flat of the largest palace in England—it's called Blenheim Palace—and it's part of the same structure as Oxford University. So it's—I mean, it's just gorgeous. But um, and it's 18 minutes. Door to door to our college, and it's it's uh, I mean it's it's great, but there are a number of things that you know not downside so much as just you know the reality check. We cannot have pets. Um, they did not want a family that still had kids at home. Uh, we have no garage. We have no closets. We have no storage space. And so the vacuum cleaner and the ironing board are both under the bed. <laughs> 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 it's just, but it is a, I mean, it's, it's magic. It's yeah. magic. The, the palace sits in a walled, I mean, a stone-walled enclave, believe it or not, Mm -hmm. and it's got 4,000 acres inside this wall, so it's really cool, but at the same time, yeah, I mean, we are in the, we're in the servant's quarters, so it's the smaller rooms and the low ceilings, but we're overlooking the gardens, the lake, and the main um, palace courtyard, so, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's just, it's It's magical, it's It's exactly what
0: you you said, Yeah
1: it is it is magical it's a great place to write fantasy
0: i was going to say i bet you get a lot of inspiration while you're while you're there for sure
1: absolutely no question
0: and yep. especially it with really your works for that and especially with Enclave, um, what I thought was interesting is that you, you, know, you, you are, of course, uh, splitting your time between America and England, but this book takes place in um, sort of a remote future America. Um, and so I just was curious for you what sort of research you did to kind of build this world of this dystopian Atlanta um, and uh, Charlotte.
1: Before I was able to live from the writing, I was in business, and mm-hmm. I'm from North Carolina. So I think a lot of businessmen my age still carry the scars from the 2007, eight, nine recession. The the closeness that we came to having what happened in this book. And I love dystopian fiction. I know I'm probably too old to be saying that, but I just love it, and I wanted to do a story where there was that sense of a, uh, not a reality check, but this sort of grounding in the real possibility, the thing that might be just around the corner, and that is that if there was a really serious crash and an academic, one of these superbug academics that happened more or less at the same time, what would happen to America? And my idea was that it would reduce itself to um, the same structure of government as happened in the Middle Ages, where communication was very difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is not that far away from us. My grandfather was born and raised in a small tobacco town called Zebulon, which was 20 miles east of Raleigh, North Carolina and he went to school in what then was wake forest university in wake forest it's now in winston-salem but um wake forest is 20 miles on the other side to the west of raleigh and that 40 mile trip took just over a day if he left at sunrise he would get there after sunset and so that was his stories about growing up and leaving the farm, being the first of his generation, first of his family ever to um, to make it to university, much less to law school, was really what I, I sort of built on that. Mm. What would have been like if there was this sense? And, and also, I did live in these uh, medieval-style enclaves in southern Germany for a while. Oh, and wow. The history of of this structure and what happened... To these, uh, they were called at the time feudal states, and I didn't want to use that; I just it sounded too too old-fashioned. Right. so I called them enclaves. But what happened to the feudal states when the first of the big epidemics, the the plague, had hit, was really what I was seeing happen here: with the flood of refugees, the the instability, the the warring between the feudal states. All of this was the backdrop for what happened in enclave and what i was trying to do there was the the telling moment the, the thing that makes this singular is that in the run-up to the great crash what it's what the, the depression was called in the book in the run-up to that moment the federal government had started researching on genetic modification of humans trying to increase mental powers mental mm-hmm. powers physical strength and so forth and um, as a result of this the the kids that were coming of age at this point were the first to show genuine telepathic abilities the ability to control matter storms read minds mm-hmm. uh, transit from place to place these are the things sort of an x-men but with a, a valid uh, explanation for why these things started to happen. Right. And the power structure were terrified by this in the story. They're just absolutely mortified that their feudal state system might come under threat. And so their intent is either to control this power, bring them into these feudal states' military systems, or destroy them. There is no third alternative. Right and so the the gold mine that they that you mentioned that they discover becomes a foundation they're hoping for building a new kind of enclave one where they're joined together by their powers
0: that's and it's so great because i think that a lot of dystopian novels kind of lack a little element of hope and i felt like there was there was always this sort of yes, race against time and um, the intensity of the dystopian and the apocalypse sort of feel, but there's still like an element of hope in here. And I thought that that was a really great thing. Thank you.
1: That's actually, I think it's one of the big standouts. You were going to ask later about what I was reading. Mm-hmm. One of the One of the reasons I started on this was because of that precise issue. The only dystopian novel I have read recently that did hold that sense of Courage and hope was uh, Hunger Games. And I think that's one reason why it stayed so powerful through the whole series. So many of these successful dystopians lose, after the first book or in film, they lose uh, just a a huge amount of their readership. And I think it's because there isn't this sense of moving towards some form of hope. And uh, so that, yeah, that's exactly what I was trying to do, was to build a system where despite all of the the negativity that there was this opportunity if they're strong enough, if they're wise enough, and if they can join together and actually utilize these forces that they can't even define at the beginning of the story, then there is the chance for them to forge a new a new future, a new compass heading.
0: Yeah. So um, one of the things that you mentioned, we did talk before um, we started recording that uh, you have some really exciting other projects that you're working on. But um, what I'm curious for you before we start talking about what you're watching and reading and listening to, were there other... dystopian maybe films or, tele- or movies or um, even books that you kind of helped inspire Enclave? Or was it just you were like, I'm going to rebuild this whole world myself and, and do my own dystopian?
1: Part of Yeah, it was partly both. I think I've read all of the major dystopian novels that are out there. Mm-hmm. I, I just think the, uh, there are a couple of things. I do teach over here now occasionally creative writing at the university, and I also teach seminars all over the place. And I find within the, the younger generation, there's this... Um, and by younger generation, I, I mean basically the, the age group from, say, 17 or 18 that are entering into adulthood to those that are in their late 20s and are entering into parenthood. Mm-hmm. These are the people that seem most vulnerable to this sensation that um, life isn't getting better, that the opportunities are not there that were present for their parents, and that there is a real sense of questioning not just direction but what do they do with their life and i wanted to really i wanted i found myself arguing basically with a lot of the dystopian fiction it was the sense of i love the writing i think the context the the characters the the structure of the plot all of this is fabulous but It it needed to have something that was more than that, a a sense of um, striving towards an objective.
0: Right, Um, something bigger, for sure.
1: Yes, something bigger. That's exactly right. So that's, that's why I wrote it.
0: That's great. Well, um, let's get to the fun stuff. I mean, we've been talking about your book. Of course, that's fun. but okay.
1: I, Now that um, all the boring stuff is done,
0: uh, yeah. <laughs> well, no, I'm like, when we were talking and you were so excited about um, telling me what you've been watching to research your film projects, I'm so curious now. Um, I wanted to jump right into that, but I'm like, you know, got to gotta do the business part. But let's talk about what you're watching, reading, and listening to right now.
1: <laughs> okay, I have um, a, a two big film projects that uh, may be coming. You know that until you actually have what I I call the end user. I mean, they're going back to my business days. But Mm -hmm. basically, everything is held up on a feature film until the investment capital, the production money, is in place, and everything is held up on a television side until one of the either networks or cable channels signs. Now, this whole panoply, this this I mean, everything is changing so fast right now that. You know, if you were talking to someone who is an expert in the field, or if they were listening to what I just said, there would be this sense of okay, yeah, that's true, but and the the but here is what's called SVOD, the series video on demand, mm-hmm. and that's Netflix, uh, Hulu, um, YouTube is coming up with some now. Facebook uh,
0: has it as well with Facebook
1: Watch. Yep. Yep. Facebook. Um, I don't know if you've heard, but um, Vudu has recently been acquired by. Um, Walmart, and they are planning to set up a Walmart channel like this. And uh, So it's on and on. These things are growing, and the the result is that there's a there's an opportunity for young people, young writers. And by in in, in this particular case, I include me because I'm new to this. I've mm-hmm. been writing what are called spec scripts, screenplays that are basically just hoping to find someone to, to buy them. I've, I've had one film that went to into production and was released by Pure Flix uh, two and a half years ago called Unlimited and I've had a couple of others that are now hopefully entering into production in the next these are small features mm-hmm. into the next six months but this is a new thing and it's because of this work that i've been struggling to fit into my writing schedule and the contacts that have been made because i've basically been investing in this now for five years that it appears the doors are opening to something much bigger and so this would be the next uh series after enclave the title of the first book is called island of time and it is a contemporary fantasy. Now, when we started working on this, it was just me and a couple of producers who are fans of the Thomas Locke work and were looking for something like this and felt that they could place it, and it's just continued to grow. So now, My writing partner and the showrunner, if it does become a series, is a man named Ken Esten. And Ken was the the originator and the showrunner of some really—he's probably the—after J.J. Abrams, he's the biggest— uh, Showrunner alive in America today. Oh, wow. Showrunner is the the other word they used to use as creative Creator. producer. He's mm-hmm. the he's the guy who basically is um, responsible for everything except the nuts and bolts, the money, and the mm-hmm. you know the camera direction and so forth. Um, Ken Esten did um, Taxi, Taxi Two, the Tracy Ullman Show. Um, he co-produced and show ran the first seasons of *Simpsons* with Matt Gronig. He did the *Beverly Hills Cop* film series, and Ken is—he's teaching me a lot. There's this sense of. Uh, moving from sort of like the wannabe stage into like I've got to grow up a lot very fast <laughs> in order to be able to communicate with these people so one of the things I'm doing right now is going through he he gives me these assignments the things that I've got to read or listen to or or watch and so that's what I'm doing right now that and the producers are doing the same thing
0: oh that's so cool do you so, get like a big list does he give you like you have a meeting and you're like this is this is your September list of stuff you have to go through
1: it would be very nice if they did that. <laughs> I need to tell them to talk to you. Yeah, like, There's nothing you get so the organized. Yeah. No, it's like, oh, have you seen this? Why not? It's like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Forgive me. I've lived out of the States for 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> no excuse. Get on it. So right now I'm watching the breakout television series for J.J. Abrams, which was called Alias. Mm-hmm. And it was also the launch pad for, um, I can't remember the ladies name. Gardner. Bradley Cooper. Yeah, Jennifer Gardner, yep. That's it. Okay, um, I, I've never seen it, so I've. I've got, Are you enjoying it? I am loving it. I have, I, I'm. I'm just going to watch the first two seasons, though. So I've got a week. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is, you know. Okay, this is not what you would class as a rough gig. I have got to sit down and watch uh 19 more episodes of a of a project project that i really love so no this is this has been a lot of fun
0: that's awesome and it's funny too picking a broadcast show because they're so much longer than like a lot of the cable dramas that we have now because you know alias was on and it was a 24 to 26 episode show per season so
1: it's a big commitment yeah It is, it is. And uh, again, it's very interesting that you say that because one of the issues that we're dealing with is the number of episodes. Of
0: course.
1: Right now, they are debating going back and forth over feature film versus... Because each of the books is a standalone, so we could do it either as a season, like they did with Magicians, Lev Grossman's Mm -hmm. series that's on Sci-Fi Channel. Or they could do it as standalone features, like what Netflix is doing with a number of their bigger projects. And, you know, it's like, okay, okay. (laughs) I love them both. Please don't ask me anything more. Yes, I'll do it. (laughs) I, I wrote it as a feature film. And Ken Eston has done a pilot based on my feature. So we're sort of moving in both directions. Right. But a lot of, again, what I'm doing is going back through the people that they are interested in in terms of actors, directors, um, cinematographers, and looking at their earlier work, which, again, this is completely new. I have never done anything like this before. But I, I love it. It reminds me, when I first started writing... I wrote for nine years and finished seven books before my first was accepted for publication. And my first mentor during this startup time was Arthur C. Clarke, who was the science fiction writer who did um, previously his best-known work was 2001, A Space Odyssey, mm-hmm. which Stanley Kubrick won an Oscar for. But he's recently had, if you haven't seen it, there's a mini series that the Sci-Fi Channel did of his last a uh, short story called Childhood's End.
0: Oh, and yeah, I remember that show.
1: It's amazing, you know. It's sixty years old, mm-hmm. and it, they didn't change anything except the sort of the science fiction elements of the city where they were located. But the structure of the story, the um, the problem that they faced, the characters, and the way they. The dialogue, basically, it's it's all as he wrote it 60 years ago. I mean, that, that's that says a lot about the power of his work. So, one of the things that he did when I first started working with him was he set two sort of like standards. They weren't um, they weren't just commitments. What he wanted was for me to understand that um, basically. Everyone who starts writing faces the same trauma. The, you know It may be kids, it may be commitments to a family, it may be other jobs, but there's something that grants them every reason under the sun to stop writing. And so one of the commitments I had to make, and, and now my job at the time, I was a business consultant, I was living in Germany, and I was in three and sometimes four countries every week. Wow. And the first commitment I had to make was that I would do a minimum of one page of new writing every day, regardless of what else I was facing. Mm-hmm. And the other thing was that I had to commit to write to read one book by a living best-selling author and the genre that I was writing in every week. So what I was doing was connecting both to the creative side and to the current commercial side. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the discussion that we had was founded upon those two aspects. And I I still use it. It's one of the things that I do in agreeing to work as mentor to my students is that they have to commit to these two
0: things. Yeah, and that's great because one, it also teaches them discipline and the uh, importance of knowing what's going on in the market if they're trying to sell popular fiction.
1: Yes. That's yes, that's exactly right. That's so, exactly
0: so right. you're watching Alias right now. What else are you going to be watching when you finish that?
1: Um, we have made a list of the science fiction titles. Um, there's just not much contemporary fantasy out there right yeah. now. There's Magicians on Sci-Fi Channel, and there's American Gods, which basically, and I like Neil Gaiman's work, but mm-hmm. I think probably most of the people. Who are not watching American Gods will agree that it is a failure as a as an adaptation. as a television project, yeah. and they spent so much money on it. It was the rumor is, I mean, the the official is six million dollars an episode and the the rumor is that it was closer to eight now gold of uh, uh, game of thrones is 10 Mm -hmm. and there's just no way that you can translate what they've done in american gods over to the game of thrones it's just it's appalling i've never been able to finish an episode and i went into this really looking forward to it i felt like there was a vanguard of of the things that, you know, could be done potentially on television. And it's, it's just awful. So there is Stranger Things, which um, we've been using, um, because a lot of these now are crossovers between fantasy and sci-fi, contemporary fantasy and Mm -hmm. sci-fi. World War Z is another. And then um, from the science fiction side, Passengers, uh, Arrival, Um. oh I can't I can't think of the others now (laughs) the pressure
0: the pressure I know (laughs) it's always hard I'm like have your list in front of you
1: (laughs) you know I'm going to hang up the phone and I'm going to go oh my gosh I forgot all five
0: of them (laughs) but those are all I mean what's great is uh, and you're probably watching at this point probably maybe Annihilation would be another good one another good sci-fi
1: it's not on over here yet. Not yet. Okay. Yeah, and, I, think, I can't remember no,
0: when it came out. This I think I'm, it came out earlier this year, so it should be hitting the. It should be coming in the next year or so.
1: Counterpart is. Have you seen that?
0: Oh, with um, with uh, uh with Simmons. what's his name? Yeah, <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. we're just we're so good at this. Yes. yes. Counterpart is is a. I think it's going to sweep the Emmys this year, and I think it's again. It's one of those where you can take a relatively small budget and a huge science fiction slash fantasy concept and turn it into something that is a a real blockbuster. Mm-hmm. And the the core thing, the reason why in particular we're looking at passengers, which was a, a bust as far as the critics was concerned and made an enormous amount of money at the block it, at the box office. Yeah. Oh my gosh. The the the, the 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 crucial element and one reason why it's been such a thrill working with Ken is it comes down to character and the emotional bond that they create with the audience. I feel like, again, this is one reason why so many of the other dystopian fiction concepts don't work after the first book, because if you care for these people and you are going to follow them over a series of two, three, four titles, you want as you said you want to have hope, you want to root for them. Yeah, for sure. And if it's just one dilemma opening into another dilemma without any sense of resolution or or even a goal, I mean, that's that's the real issue. I think for several of the dystopian projects that failed on film 2, the end of the at the end of the second film where they had this massive audience come into the first one was why do we we want to come back? I mean, mm-hmm. it's just you know we we they don't know what they're working for. How can we? For sure. So that's that to me is a really nice thing. And I, and I was scared. I mean. When I was first introduced to Ken, he had read the screenplay and had declared to the producers that he wanted to work with me. And my fear was that I was going to have one of these, you know, really arrogant L.A. types that effectively decided, okay, we're going to pat this kid on the head and we're (laughs) going to go off and do exactly what we want to do. Right,
0: give you your check and and you walk away.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I have been working on this island project for three years now, and I really I feel like that it does have the potential, but I would like to be a part of making that potential become, you know, not just a book, but also a, a series. So yeah. Ken's attitude was, for the first two times that we had conference calls, it was basically just to ask questions. And so we talked about, the emotive structure, how we're going to link the characters over a series, what are the the moral issues that each of them face, and these are the questions that I wanted to have asked, so I told him at the end of it. And it's not a very good negotiating position to put (laughs) myself in, but I said, Ken, (laughs) whatever you want, I hope they give it to you, and I'll do whatever you say. It was just, you know. (laughs) Because you're
0: building a partnership with him, you're building a teamwork. You know, let him go out and do all the the, the hard negotiating.
1: Yes,
0: that, thank you. That's okay. I hope he agrees with that. Yeah, but yeah that sounds wonderful. <laughs> well, and it must be nice. I was just thinking of how um, just nice it must be for you to have this person that you get to be creative with and bounce these ideas off and it's a different because you know when you're a writer when you're an author at least it's so solitary but the the filmmaking process and as you know having made a few films it's so collaborative and now that you've kind of latched on with another person that can be just as excited about your projects like that is it's got to be just fuel for your creative soul
1: yes it is. the And everything you said is absolutely right. The The first time I went into, looking back now, the first time I went into production on a film, there were so many things that I just didn't understand. Mm-hmm. It's, you can have a hundred people tell you that it is a collaborative process, but until you actually see all of these egos seated around the table, yeah. and their aim is to make the story their story, yes, there's this... I mean, everything that you have in terms of your, as as the author, moving into a project has to be rearranged. And so through now what is almost five years of learning, what I'm looking for, and thankfully because there is this momentum that's building I can ask for, is I want people who share the vision. So that there is not a sense of I mean, we one of the early meetings we had with um, with LA on the island project was with one of the really, really big producers. He's working right now with the writer and director of Gladiator on a project. That's, oh, neat. this is. The, and his attitude was, well, if you change this and this and this, then um, I want to sit down and talk to you about a contract. And the answer was, you know, okay, on the one hand, I would love to have that size of a contract and the money. Sure. And on the other hand, is it still my project? And uh, thankfully, before we answered that, we had another director come in, and uh, his name is Norman Stone. He did um, Shadowlands. He's done a, a number of big projects, but. Norman, he's an Emmy and, Oscar, sorry, Emmy and BAFTA award-winning director. And Norman said, it's okay as it is. And so there was that balance. And yeah. so that, that really is what you're looking for. And that's one of the things that started to help me and, and my wife sort of redefine how we move forward in the, the film world. And that is that we are looking for people that we can trust to carry the vision,
0: Yes, absolutely, and that's because I think every author is so different when it comes to either optioning their work or going out and doing the, you know, doing the writing of the script themselves and being really involved, like some authors just want to walk away and be like, here's my bo- here's my book, I'll take my check, and I'll see you later, and then there's other ones that want to be involved with everything, and so you're exactly right trying to find that right balance for you and your family.
1: Yes, it's, it's I mean, there are a lot of examples. Um, my uh, the, the one the, my favorite one when, when we were trying to be honest about how we're going to work on this in what is really Hollywood rather than what we wanted Hollywood sure, to be, yes. if that makes any sense mm-hmm. at all, um, was John Grisham, who refuses to get involved in the film projects. And quite frankly, I think his his stories are great, but his writing is not that fabulous. Mm-hmm. And okay, that's just one author's opinion. And I've read all of his books, but. The two projects that I feel were the best in terms of the, um, the story structure translated to screen were um, the first one that starred Tom Cruise, and then the one that starred Matt Damon, who's the, name oh, the of that Rainmaker. One. Yes, the Rainmaker.
0: I think the and the first one was The Firm.
1: Yes. Grisham was so upset with the structure of the Rainmaker and how it wound up, what they did to it, that he refused to to have any of his others made into films.
0: Oh, wow. I love the Rainmaker.
1: (laughs) I think it's much better than the book. The the rhythm of the story and the characters, Danny Glover and and, um, Danny DeVito, both, I mean, these were Incredibly well done. There was that real sense of watching these people become other people, and that you know that that rarely happens, where you literally forget you're watching a movie. And I do feel like that this is this is the key that it's not uh, it, it's not making my film. It is being part of a film that is bigger, that's greater. Lev Grossman's The Magicians is another great example. Ken's work has always had a comedic edge. He's, he's known as someone who does comedic drama. Mm-hmm. Cheers is probably the most straightforward comedy that he's ever designed, but Beverly Hills Cop is what we're using as the, the standard here. And one of the things that made it really nice working or, or having this idea of working with him was um, the magicians. The the books that, that Lev Grossman wrote do not have any humor in them. And in, in the sci-fi series, they have this um, I'm not going to get into what happens, but they, they have this comedic edge that is just completely off the wall. And it, it just it works beautifully it's it's just and it adds so much that really if you go back and read the books after there's that sense of they're kind of flat the, the the television series is just it is a lot better yeah a lot better and that's that's what I'd like to see happen here
0: that's awesome well uh Thomas our time is almost up but I wanted to make sure that you had a chance to let our listeners know how they um, can find out more about you and stay in touch with you
1: well, for right now, the um, the Thomas Locke website is the only way. And I think what we're going to do is with the first film and that's either going to be Emissary, which is based on the um, the first Thomas Locke series. It's a traditional fantasy, mm-hmm. um, which they are hoping is going to go into pre-production, which means they start signing the stars and... Um, doing the location work, start pre-production in March and go in June, when that or this island project, when either of these goes into pre-production, I'm going to relaunch a new sort of revamped structure that would be um, dual it would be the Thomas Locke projects and then it would be an exclusive on each of these so for the moment it's just Thomas Locke but watch the space i think in 6 months it's going to um, expand considerably. Awesome. Well,
0: great. Well, um, and I know that you've got, you know, books under multiple different names as well, but, um, we're so excited about Enclave. It's going to be available in stores on November 20th. So guys, make sure you mark your calendar and you can get it anywhere. Books are sold online and in stores. Um, Thomas Locke, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today. And I hope that your uh, rest of your day is wonderful.
1: Thank you, Glenn. This has been a real pleasure.
0: It has been. Thank you. Hey guys, it's Gwen. If you love what you hear, there are a few ways you can help us during season two. First, don't forget to subscribe to the Fresh Fiction Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts or any of your other favorite podcast apps. Rating, reviewing, and sharing the podcast with your friends helps us out more than you'll ever know. Sharing is caring, as they say. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram as RealVixen. I'd like to extend my thanks again to Thomas Locke for joining me today. You can find Enclave anywhere books are sold. Thank you also to Ravel Books and Bethany House for their continued support of the podcast. Make sure you stop by FreshFiction.com to find out more about Thomas Locke and other Ravel Books and Bethany House authors. Until next time, happy reading.